Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And today's subject is going to be Juana of Castile. And it's a really popular suggestion. But full disclosure... I originally chose it as a Halloween topic. I feel kind of like you a few weeks ago where you were admitting one of your topics was... Johan Dippel. Yes, Johan Dippel was supposed to have been a Halloween topic, but I believe you had a delayed book order. I did. This What's your excuse? <laughs> I also had a little bit of a delay. I had a, a library book on order. <laughs> um, but I also just realized it was a way more complex story than I was anticipating. And and once I got into the story, I realized it wasn't really a Halloween episode at all, even though the legend surrounding it certainly suggests uh, a Halloween nightmarish sort of air to it. Juana's story, though, really gets dwarfed by her more famous family members, her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic monarchs, who combine the powers of their respective kingdoms, Aragon and Castile, her grandson, Philip II of Armada fame, her sister, Catherine of Aragon, who is the wife that Henry VIII cast aside to marry Anne Boleyn. She's probably the most famous of all. Uh, You can see why Juana gets almost lost in the mix. So consequently, pretty much all that ever gets said about Juana was that she was crazy, that she'd rant and rave to get her way, that she was so madly in love with her husband, she kept his dead body on hand, opening the coffin lid, gazing at it, kissing his feet. Thus, we have Juana la Loca, or Joanna the Mad, and that's often the way the requests come in. They want to know about this crazy person. And that Juana was crazy explains away the nearly 50 years that she spent in confinement, not allowed to write, not allowed to visit the nearby convent, and eventually kept to one room, though she was, in her own right, Queen of Castile. But the real story here is really so much more interesting and raises a lot of good questions. For example, was Juana really mentally unbalanced? And why did the most important people in her life, her husband, her father, her son, why did they allow her to be treated as she was? And finally, why, when she had the chance, didn't she do the same by them? So as you can tell, this is a pretty massive subject with a lot of complexities, and we're going to take two episodes to discuss it. Um, plus, I just think since people have been asking for this topic since the beginning, <laughs> I'm pretty sure uh, we we need to do right by it. But Juana's ultimate fate, which was, of course, being locked up in Tordesillas Castle, had a lot to do with her birth, and obviously because of who her parents were, Ferdinand and Isabella, but also because of her birth order. She was the third child with a brother and a sister ahead of her. So it was never expected that she would come into the inheritance she did. Her mother was Isabella of Castile, who was a woman of intense religious conviction. I mean, hello, Spanish Inquisition. That's probably the other main association you have with one of Juana's family members. Um, but Isabella, as a young woman, had fought really hard to snatch her own throne from a competing family claim and, and really had a lot of uh, force in her personality. Her father, Juana's father, rather, was Ferdinand II of Aragon. And this couple had arranged their own marriage in 1469. And while the partnership didn't officially unite their kingdoms, I mean, both kingdoms even maintain their own currencies, it did 
provide a certain amount of unity. They were each acting as monarch and consort. And it was a very cooperative sort of marriage. The couple carried out the Reconquista together with former podcast subject and um, presented a front, at least to their people, that their kingdoms were allied. But of course, all these joint acts of theirs, all this cooperation hinged on the both of them being alive or at least uniting their kingdoms permanently through their children. But for the first seven years that they were married, it seemed like the heir that would have to do this was, unfortunately, or unfortunately in their eyes, a girl, a girl who was also named Isabella after her mother. Then, miraculously in 1478, Ferdinand and Isabella had a second child, a son named Juan, followed quickly by three more daughters, Juana, who was born in 1479, then Maria, and then Catherine. And while the junior Isabella had been raised to be a possible queen, the younger daughters were raised to be consorts because their parents naturally assumed that their brother Juan would now inherit their kingdoms, which is not to say that they didn't lead an unusually adventurous life for princesses, Juan and her sisters, I mean. Queen Isabella was intensely interested in supervising her children's educations and their religious instruction, and she didn't let her multi-year conflict with the Moors stop her from keeping a really close eye on how things were progressing with all of them. She took the kids on the road with her, something that was occasionally dangerous, like when the family tent caught fire, and they were even there when Ferdinand and Isabella took control of the Alhambra. Dublina and I were talking about this beforehand. It seemed like Ferdinand and Isabella, more than your average monarchs, and, you know, we've done a lot of these sad royal childhood stories now, um, really seem to have raised their kids. And and I think that's something important to remember going forward, too, that these would have been uh, role models to them, not just from, like, well, you are my lady, the queen, my lord, the father, but somebody who they really knew closely as well. But the girls were really well educated. They learned Latin and politics, religion, music, and dancing, plus a lot of domestic skills like baking and spinning and weaving. According to Julia Fox, who wrote uh, the book Sister Queens, they would have been some of the best educated women of their day, really, with one pretty major oversight, at least for girls who are meant to be consorts abroad, girls who would be marrying into foreign courts to establish diplomatic relations. And that was modern languages. I mean, they were learning Latin, but they weren't learning French. They weren't learning English. Uh, A bit of a problem. But among this especially close and talented family, Juana was really considered the beauty. She had auburn hair. She had blue eyes. And she was supposed to have really closely resembled her namesake, too, Ferdinand's mother, Juana Enriquez. Uh, she apparently resembled her so much that Isabella would sometimes call her daughter mother-in-law, according to the Women in World History Encyclopedia. Having a much older sister also meant that Juana, Maria, and Catherine got a peek at their future as consorts when they were still kids. So they got a glimpse at all the pageantry that came with the wedding and the importance of a political alliance and even the responsibility that came with it. But also they got a look at what it meant for someone to part the family, to leave the family. You realistically expect to never see them again in this scenario. So when their eldest sister Isabella left home in 1490 to marry the Portuguese king, they got to see all of this. But just seven months later, her husband was thrown from his horse and killed. So Isabella came home and she was devastated. So this was likely a pretty formative event in all the kids' lives and one that showed just how fragile these really long-planned alliances could be. 
Eventually, though, it was, of course, the younger children's turn to marry, and Ferdinand and Isabella really seemed to have wrapped things up neatly and efficiently. They, of course, still had the widowed Isabella on their hands, and they wanted to remarry her, uh, in this case to her dead husband's brother, who was the new king of Portugal, Manuel. Their middle daughter, Maria, they decided to keep in reserve, and that's because Isabella was so upset being widowed, that she was uh, trying to get out of any remarriage entirely. She wanted to perhaps even enter a convent. So we're going to keep Maria on hand just in case Isabella didn't come through on that alliance. Catherine, who is still just a very young girl at the time, would eventually go on to marry the eldest son of Henry VII of England, Prince Arthur. That's also a really great story, Catherine marrying Arthur and her widowhood and eventually marrying Arthur's brother, Henry VIII. And then finally, and this is the part that really concerns our story, Juana and Juan would marry a brother and sister from Burgundy, Philip and Margaret, who were the children of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. And this dual marriage, I mean, I know it sounds kind of strange, but it was a really good deal on both sides, at least for the from the parents' perspective. It was a double strong alliance, for one thing. There was no need for a dowry, and it was even convenient in terms of transportation. I mean, at least if the kids were kind of all the same age, like we'll send our daughter on one ship and you can, we'll pick up yours and take her back to Spain. And it was um, pretty, pretty efficient, pretty efficient from from there the way that they saw things. And it was considered a pretty good match for 16-year-old Juana, too. For one thing, she dodged a bullet by not having to marry the widowed Maximilian herself. His son, Philip, was just a year older than her and had the nickname Philip the Fair or Philip the Handsome. So coming from a 16-year-old girl's point of view, that's probably... Good catch. Yeah, something kind of enticing. And while she only stood to become Archduchess on her marriage, Philip was well-positioned to become the next Holy Roman Emperor after his father, which was not an inherited position. He had to have the right political connections, essentially. Sure. So Juana left Laredo August 22nd, 1496, with a fleet of 100 ships. Bad weather delayed her party, wrecked a ship, and meant that she missed her fiancé when she finally got to Burgundy. She eventually met up with Philip in October, so months, months later, uh, but a week before their planned wedding. When Philip saw her, though, he was apparently so captivated by her beauty that he ordered the priest marry them then and there. So... That seems like, I mean, just kind of a fairy tale princess sort of story, right? She marries Love her her handsome prince. He's only a year older than her. He's well positioned to become Holy Roman Emperor. Good deal, right? Maybe not so much, because while things may have briefly been idyllic with Juana and Philip in love and with Juana able to live a freer life in Brussels than she ever had at home with dances, parties to go to, and she got to wear these daring Flemish dresses, but it didn't last very long. The couple seemed to maintain their intense physical attraction for pretty much their entire marriage, but Philip soon became emotionally and possibly even physically abusive. And he wasn't exactly faithful either, which, of course, no wife wants that. But for her part, Juana reacted to Philip's infidelities in a way that would have been considered unseemly for a consort of the time. Fox mentions how Isabella, despite her strong marriage of equals with Ferdinand, just kind of 
turned a blind eye on his illegitimate children. But Juana did no such thing. She would make scenes and was intensely jealous of any woman that Philip came in contact with. She'd starve herself in protest or go without sleep. But Philip was also really manipulative and controlling as well. He not only allowed her no interest in governing, which, I mean, she might not have expected that as a consort, but uh, at least something for her to do. He didn't allow her anything like that. But he also controlled her own household and her personnel, which was something that was a that was a very unusual decision to do that. He also managed all her finances. And, I mean, you might think of monarchs as, like, couples with a joint checking account. That was not the case. Queens had their own lands, their own rents, their own bills, their own staff to handle businesses. I mean, they would bring a lot of that in, perhaps with a dowry, but also some might be gifts from their husband. But they would manage it separately from from all of his possessions. Philip didn't let Juana do that. And then he also stopped giving her the money due through their marriage agreement. Uh, eventually, Isabella, who was kind of, she was hearing rumors about what was going on with her daughter, kind of concerned with uh, her daughter's religious state and whether she was as devout as she ought to be, but also what was going on with the marriage. She sent an envoy called Friar Tomas to investigate the situation. And he reported back that Juana didn't even have money for alms. And since she couldn't pay her her own servants. Most of the Spanish ones ditched her eventually and opened up space for Philip's own picks to come in. Um, basically endless numbers of spies to, to watch Juana's every move. Well, and then probably most ominously, Friar Tomas also reported that Juana told him if she complained, quote, she receives a great injury from it. So suggesting that she's being hurt in the process as well. To the world, though, these two still seemed like a happy couple. Philip dressed her up for public appearances, and they would dine in public together. He would give her costly jewelry, and they even had babies together eventually, an heir and a spare, and four daughters, too. So a lot of kids. One obnoxious note about that, though, when their first child turned out to be a girl, Disappointed, Philip basically told Juana, you know, the expense is on you, <laughs> wife. I'll pay for a boy if you have one, but you can handle the daughter. Um, but back to back to Spain. We've been catching up on, on all of what was going on in Burgundy between Juana and Philip. But as their marriage was crumbling, her family underwent this series of marriages and births and unexpected deaths that ultimately resulted in the most unlikely of events. And that was, of course, Juana becoming heir to Aragon and Castile. So first of all, we should backtrack to the double marriage between the two uh, brothers and sister sets. So while Juana was sent off to Burgundy to marry Philip, Philip's 17-year-old sister Margaret was sent to Spain to marry Juana's older brother, Juan. Everybody's got all that straight. This couple also experienced brief marital happiness. But in October 1497, after only six months of marriage, Juan suddenly sickened and died. He was only 20 years old. Um, things got worse. Margaret turned out to be pregnant, but she miscarried. Uh, it seemed like things were in a bad state for Ferdinand and Isabella's family. And this meant that Juana's eldest sister, Isabella, was again heir. She had finally overcome her grief at her first husband's death to marry his brother, 
and had only recently gotten to Portugal when the news of Juan's death came to her. And she and her husband, King Manuel, returned to Spain to be recognized by the Cortes, an assembly representing the nobility and towns of the kingdom. Isabella, too, turned out to be pregnant and gave birth to her son Miguel in Spain. But she died shortly after childbirth, and ultimately her sister Maria, the one who had sort of been held in reserve, was sent off to marry Manuel. Making this story even more complicated. Yes, very confusing. Uh, the, the family tree gets a little tight in there. But um, at this point, clearly all the hopes were on this baby boy, Miguel, whose father even agreed for him to be raised by his grandparents in Spain rather than Portugal. I mean, he seemed very obliging. Uh, but little Miguel lived only two years and died in 1500. So suddenly, Juana is the eldest of her parents' children, no grandchildren from the siblings above her, and therefore heir to her parents' lands, a situation that was unimaginable to Ferdinand, to Isabella, and to Juana herself, but immensely attractive to her husband, Philip, who certainly, if he wouldn't allow her to be a consort, you know, to manage her own household as his consort, he certainly had no intention of letting her rule as her own monarch, you know, as uh, rule her own lands as queen. To the Catholic monarchs, though, it was a disturbing situation since Juana was so clearly under Philip's control, as Isabella knew from Friar Tomas's reports, and since Philip, being from Burgundy, was not as unabashedly pro-Spanish as they might have hoped. In fact, on the way to Spain, Philip insisted that they travel by land, though it took much longer and Juana was pregnant with their third child at the time. But he wanted to do this so that they could just kind of take a detour and swing by France on the way. There, he betrothed their baby Charles to Louis XII's daughter, something that Juana, as a good anti-French Spanish princess, just hated. And Juana, just an interesting note here, even though she was still just an archduchess, she also didn't acknowledge the French queen as her better and even wore only Spanish clothes at court. She was a spunky girl. She was. (laughs) Uh, and, And that's another important thing to consider, especially in the next episode. But... Ferdinand and Isabella still hoped that this Philip problem could be sort of ironed out. And they hoped they could do that by keeping the couple, the young couple and and their kids, ideally, in Spain with them. You know, training Juana to become an independent monarch, as they had with their eldest daughter, Isabella, when she was a girl. Teaching Philip about his new country, how it worked trying to get him to to have an appreciation of it. But Philip was just completely uninterested in this. And he was there for for two things, essentially, for the approval of the Cortes of Castile and Aragon uh, as Juana, as the heir, and as Philip as her consort. So he wanted to get that stamp of approval and then go home. And even though Juana was by this point already pregnant with their fourth child and couldn't travel, he left anyway. He was going back to Burgundy with or without her. So Juana had to stay in Spain for for a certain period of time to deliver her baby. She did that. It was a, a second son named Ferdinand. And then she was faced with a decision, and it was probably the most important decision of her life, or may have been, and that was whether to stay in Spain with her parents and her, her new baby or return to her husband. 
It's hard to really speculate too much without indulging in alt history here, but Isabella was offering her daughter the chance to learn the workings of government and to grow into an independent monarch, though it's, it is arguable as to how much power Juana might have had with two parents as forceful of hers sort of leading the way. But at the very least, though, there was this chance to get away from her abusive husband, Philip, and live again in this luxurious, familiar life. But manipulative Philip knew that as an unpopular foreigner, his Spanish claim really revolved around having Juana under his thumb. So he was probably regretting leaving without her at this point. Juana chose her husband, though, for some reason, whether it was because she loved him or maybe she missed her other older children because Philip had made little Charles write a letter to her begging her to come home. Or she simply felt it was her role to play, to go back and to be his wife. Be the loyal consort. Um, but Isabella wouldn't agree to it. And so Juana finally protested in the most effective way she knew how, one she had certainly honed at her during her time at Philip's court. Um, and she didn't eat and she didn't sleep. She didn't talk. She'd stand in the rain and demand to, to be let be able to go home. And by 1504, Isabella finally let her go. She convinced her to to leave baby Ferdinand behind in Spain since he was kind of young to travel. Um, it was clearly a fateful decision, and that's partly because Juana threw in her lot with Philip, but also because she showed her mother and many other people back in Spain that she might be a little unbalanced. All of these unqueenly sort of protests um, were disturbing to folks, and it turned out to be the perfect weapon for Philip to gain Juana's inheritance. But we're going to stop there and talk about what happens later, what happens uh, with Philip, what happens with Ferdinand, what happens with Charles, who's just a little kid at this point. Um, and who ends up getting to run Castile and Aragon. He does. So we will be discussing all of that in a second episode. So what kind of listener mail do we have today, Sarah? Well, we have one that I chose because it was pretty charming, but it also has a, a Spanish reference in it. But I'll get to that at the end. It's from listener Monica, and she wrote to say, I'm a fiction novelist, and I just love your podcast. When I'm writing, I always have you guys or Josh and Chuck from Stuff You Should Know on in the background. Without knowing it, you guys have been a huge help when I'm looking for voices for my characters. Currently, Sarah, you give voice to the good queen, and Dublina, you give voice to the heroine. When I finally publish the first part of my book series, I'll be sure to send you both a copy. So that's very fun. Very um, cool. You do have a very queenly voice. Oh, thank you. You have the voice of a heroine. My thing. <laughs> um, so Monica does go on, though, to, to mention that she has a little bit of a connection to the great Spanish hero El Cid and suggested him as a topic. Um, Katie and I talked about his horse long ago in the History's Greatest Battle Horses that's podcast. Right. Um, but she thought that El Cid himself would make a pretty excellent subject. So if we want to go way back in Spanish history, that would be a good place to start. We have another email here from Shannon in Texas, and she says, I was so excited to see the subject of your most recent podcast, which is a different podcast from probably the most <laughs> recent one many of you have listened to, if you're listening in order. 
uh, it's the Jim Bowie podcast that she's referring to. She says, I have a family connection to share. My dad is really into genealogy and in some book read of a dispute between Jim Bowie and one of my direct ancestors. Further research found that my ancestors sold Bowie land that wasn't his to sell. So there is the instance of land speculation that infuriated Bowie and showed him that a profit was to be had. While I was in high school 15 years ago, we took a little trip to the basement of a parish courthouse in Louisiana and actually held the original bill of sale in our hands, complete with my ancestors and Bowie's signatures. Dad and I joked that we should have just walked out with it. The digital picture isn't great, and the courthouse apparently figured that they shouldn't allow just anyone to peruse their records unsupervised. <laughs> Darn. Anyway, we were pretty blown away by that. Yeah, especially it's a fun since, story. I mean, if, if it's the same guy, the one who kicked off Bowie in the first place, realizing that this could be a, a business after he got cheated himself, that's pretty, pretty wild. Um, a good ancestor story. It is. So thank you guys. Thank you for suggestions, for writing stories inspired by our voices. That's always cool. Um, and just sharing suggestions, too. Yeah, and if you have any more suggestions to share with us, you can write us at historypodcast at discovery.com, or you can look us up on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Juana's predicament, we do have an article on how royalty works. You can check that out by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 